0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com/slash metaverse impact.
2: Hello, Stefanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy. This week focused on two very important elections, one coming up, and the other just happened. The one that's happened, which will probably turn out to be more important for the planet, was the Brazilian presidential election. And the winner, as you'll definitely all know by now, was Luiz Inácio de Silva, universally known as Lula. He's already served two terms as president, up until 2010. He also served prison time, barely two years ago, for corruption and money laundering. Investors had been frightened when this left-wing populist was elected the first time around. Now they seem to be relieved. But what happens next? Maria Eloisa Caburo in Brasilia has an on-the-ground report in a few minutes. But first I thought we should talk about the U.S. midterm elections on November 8th, which you'd think would be heavily influenced by what's happening in the U.S. economy, but maybe not. Let's talk it all through with Bloomberg chief U.S. economist Anna Wong and Bloomberg's White House reporter Nancy Cook. Now, uh. Anna, we have every congressional seat and a third of the seats in the Senate up for grabs in this election. Before we get to how the economy has or has not changed the race in, in different parts of the country, I guess you should just paint a scene for us. Inflation is obviously the highest we've seen in, in many years in the US, but it's not a straightforward um, sort of economic crisis story. I mean, the US is not in recession. We're not seeing a big rise in unemployment. So, so how's the economy looking
1: well, first of all, people feel very gloomy about the future. But if you look at the fundamentals, such as the actual spending, how much people have in the bank accounts, um, jobs out there, the actual labor income growth over, over the past 12 months, it's actually better than um, many, many years for decades. In fact, it's the best in a couple decades. And the reason why people feel gloomier than the fundamentals would predict they would feel is because of inflation and you no know, um, research on people's psychology is not strong suit of economists but uh, sociologists and other fields have shown that people just feel like they're cheated whenever inflation is high right you you even if your nominal income rise at the same pace as inflation people just feel cheated when inflation is 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 eroding their nominal income.
3: I
2: guess we should just clarify, because there has been, I mean, I know Larry Summers has talked about how most people's real wages have been going down, even though the nominal is high. So for for a big chunk of the workforce, I guess wages are not quite keeping up with inflation, or you would say it, they are keeping up?
1: Well, I would say for the uh, lower income household, we see that nominal in- income growth at the Bottom quartile of the workers are actually catching up with inflation. The the uh, wage growth was at ten or eleven percent at the bottom twenty five percent of the workers. So for those workers, I would say their real income is catching up to, you know, actually has been positive over the past twelve months. But for the um, top half of the the workers, I would say that the the real real wage has been declining over the that past 12 months.
2: So, and Nancy, we, we heard from Anna on paper, um, although we have this high inflation, we do have a, still an extremely low unemployment rate. Incomes have either been uh, keeping up with inflation or almost keeping up with inflation. You've paid a lot of attention to to these campaigns and how the White House has been dealing with them. Um, how how would you say, what's been more salient on the campaign trail, inflation? jobs or other things entirely like the change in the abortion rules?
0: So we've seen um, lately in poll after poll, voters um, are really saying that the most dominant issue to them and the one that they plan to vote on is a combination of the economy and inflation. In the closing weeks of this campaign, inflation has really become the dominant issue. I would say over the summer, Democrats were very hopeful, actually, and they felt like, Uh, uh, their messages on abortion rights, uh, threats to democracy, what they saw as extremism on the part of Republicans in terms of some of their policy proposals, Democrats really felt like that would help them uh, potentially stave off much larger losses in the midterms. So, you know, historically, the party in power always loses some seats in the midterms. But I think Democrats in July and August really felt much more optimistic. You've seen a real sea change, um, Starting in September, I would say, uh, into October, where Democrats are starting to grow much more pessimistic, the economy has become the main issue. Gas prices have fluctuated, and that has definitely hurt people's perception of the economy. And another thing that we've seen is the housing market in the U.S. has started to cool as the Fed keeps raising interest rates. And so that is also affecting people. And the White House is aware that that you know while some economists believe inflation has peaked, Things like food prices and also uh, the prices for, you know, housing ha- have remained high, and those are really what the majority of Americans spend their money on. And so, even if you have, you know, some wonky White House economist on TV saying, "Look, we think inflation has peaked," that doesn't necessarily mean that these key voters that the White House needs to win over like women, suburban women, independents, that's a message that they're going to be receptive to if they're seeing high prices at the grocery store, fluctuating gas prices, and like maybe let's say their rent has gone up a lot.
2: I do remember when uh, various attempts earlier in the year by President Biden to talk about the Putin price hike and to blame President Putin for high inflation. That hasn't really stuck, right? I mean, have Republicans successfully been able to, to blame the Biden administration for high inflation?
0: The Republicans are trying to make this election a report card on President Biden and his leadership of the economy. What the White House has been trying to do is make this, particularly lately, into a choice between the two parties. And they're trying to say, you know, look, we understand inflation is high, but we're doing all these things. You know, we've released... um, We've done a strategic uh, release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We passed this sweeping legislation in August that's meant to bring down uh, inflation and and Control some prices, particularly for seniors on prescription drugs.
2: The Inflation Reduction Act. Exactly. A, many people in other countries sounded a bit silly, but anyway. Who,
0: who <laughs> are we to well, it was branded with the elections in mind. <laughs> um, but, and, and what they're trying to say is, like, look at the things we've done. We know that you're in pain, but uh, with the high prices, but we've tried to do all these things and we're doing everything we can. And by the way, the White House says, you know, inflation is really the purview of the Federal Reserve. And what they're trying to say is, if Republicans can control things again, like Congress, they don't have a plan to cover inflation. Meanwhile, Republicans just keep sort of bringing up things that are happening every day, like the everyday costs. And they're really hammering the White House on this. And they have just had a great amount of success in recent weeks, sort of driving the inflation economy message home, combined with a renewed focus on crime. There's a lot of crime in American cities now. And I think that those are messages that are really speaking to voters.
2: During midterms, uh, that you can have a very different campaigns in different parts of the country, um, for specific Senate seats or or even specific congressional seats. So, are there are economic geographical economic differences playing into different kinds of campaigns?
0: They certainly are, and and you see also different candidates trying to tailor their, tailor their message to different voting groups. So, for instance, um you know Bloomberg Economics did this great thing called the Misery Index, which looks at where Americans are most miserable. And so what we've seen in the Midwest part of the country, uh, you know, the combination of sort of inflation and employment is not as bad. But in other places where there are key Senate races, like Arizona and Nevada, the misery index is very high. And so for instance, in Arizona, we've seen the Democratic candidate there, Mark Kelly, really try to tailor his message and steer clear of Biden, you know, Biden has not gone anywhere near Arizona, and really try to tailor his message to the huge number of Latino voters that Democrats are trying to woo, who pollsters tell me have been very concerned about inflation. And so he is trying to talk to that group specifically. We've seen in Nevada, Democrats really trying to turn out to Union forces, uh, there's a you know, a bunch of the casino workers are unionized, so they're really trying to speak to those groups and and appear friendly to labor um, and speak to those people about high prices. But again, President Biden has steered clear of Nevada too. So So it's an interesting thing where the economy is being experienced differently in different states of the country, and each Senate race is sort of its own little microcosm of what is happening in the economy and what those themes are.
2: Well anna Wong that's a that's a good segue to you. I guess you should remind us what the misery index is and I think also uh, remind us of this discussion that we've had, I think in the past about how how you can it, it it could potentially be that that higher inflation is more politically damaging than high unemployment because of the larger number of people that it affects.
1: Yeah, so misery index is the sum of unemployment rate and the inflation rate, and whereas unemployment, uh, as I mean, as Stephanie said, unemployment um, affects only a small portion of the, the the population. Inflation is felt by every household and. In fact, in the lower income households who spent a higher share of the, their budget on gasoline and food, they, f- they feel it more. And to Nancy's point about the geographic distant, uh, distribution of this misery that's being felt differently in this country, we have found uh, based on misery index at state level that the red state's misery was higher and in fact worsened more under the Biden years than during the Trump years. And it, and it is a very clear trend. And that could explain why red states are the voters here are more passionate about um, going out to vote. And, and the reason why misery has worsened in red states, more so than the blue states, was because the red states never really locked down as hard as the blue states. So their, their, their local economy was already growing at sort of capacity before um, everybody opened up, right? Then after everybody opened up, And with the American Rescue Act, the inflation impulse further hit these red states more because they were operating at close to capacity even before. Hence, we see that red states has generally higher inflation than blue states.
2: You know, you've been really ahead of the game, ahead of many other forecasters this year, not only in predicting where that uh, Federal Reserve interest rate was going to go, way ahead of anyone else, expecting that to maybe get as high as five but also expecting inflation to go higher for longer than many expected. So two years' time, general election, what what do your forecasts say is the economy that President Biden potentially will be trying to get re-election on? So
1: our base case is for, the, uh, for a recession to begin in the third quarter of 2023. So by November 2024, Uh, I I would predict the economy would be gradually improving but given that uh, my forecast is also for the Fed to only begin to cut rates in 2024 perhaps around you know springtime of 2024 the economy would only be in the nascent stage of turning around unemployment would be at 5% at that point it will be pretty bad for uh, biden's election campaign
2: so nancy we have now kind of been started to look into the future so tell us what's your best guess of the election outcome the midterm election outcome and briefly what that might mean for US economic policy making over the next couple of years.
0: So I've talked to a bunch of pollsters and democratic strategists this week, and there is sort of a wide consensus that Democrats will lose the House. It's just a matter of by how wide of a margin. Um, a lot of people think that the Democrats, it, it, the Senate is a little bit more unclear, um, but I think that if they have divided government, even if Republicans just control the House, it means that there will be very little economic policy making within the Biden White House there won't be any big legislative sweeping packages and what typically happens in year 3 and 4 of a presidency if there's divided government is that the economic policy making is really relegated to just regulatory stuff so things done out of agencies rules being rewritten the president will turn much more to foreign policy. And perhaps there'll be some things done on some international economic issues. Um, He can continue to talk about the CHIPS Act. Maybe they will um, do something on trade, although they've been very reluctant to do anything uh, on the Chinese tariffs. But those will really be the areas that I will be looking for. I don't think There will be much happening out of the White House on the domestic economic front.
2: We don't know whether it will be good news for Americans, but it's bad news for people covering U.S. economic policy. Nancy Cook and
3: Anna Wong, thank you so much. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Now, even by US standards, the battle for the Brazilian presidency was brutal, almost certainly the toughest contest in Brazil's 40-odd years of democracy and the margin of victory was small, just under two percentage points. But two percent of the vote in Brazil equates to two million extra votes cast for Lula. And despite some complaints about fraud in the electoral system and demonstrations on the streets by supporters of the now outgoing president, João Bolsonaro, it looks like two million votes is gonna be enough to secure a peaceful transfer of power. But what kind of economy does president-elect Lula inherit? Does he have the team, the resources, to deliver on his promises? Here's Maria Eloisa Caporo in Brasilia.
4: Luis Inácio Lula da Silva. Lula, as Brazilians know him, is returning to the presidency after two prior terms in office in the early 2000s. The intervening years having been colorful, to say the least. He spent more than a year in jail for accusations of his involvement in a corruption scheme known as car wash. And his presidential campaign was tighter than expected, with supporters of incumbent Jair Bolsonaro, a majority in Congress. But Lula has promised better times ahead, and his supporters are hopeful he'll deliver. Here, some of them singing one of the most famous campaign slogans just after Lula was declared president, with 50.9% of the votes. The next four years are in charge of challenges. Latin America's largest economy will face lower growth, high interest rates, and persistent inflation. Here's Ernesto Revilla, head Latin American economist at Citigroup.
5: It's never good news when the Fed hikes rates for emerging markets. So Brazil will be facing headwinds going into next year with lower commodity prices, tighter financial conditions, and a slower, a slower global growth in China, in Europe, and in the US. We're forecasting relatively low growth for all of Latin America, but for, in particular for Brazil in 2023.
4: This is Gabriela, a self-declared Bolsonaro supporter I talked to at a coffee shop in Brasilia prior to election day. The economy is one of the things that I think about the most when I cast my vote. I'm an independent worker, and I need the economy to perform well. Only now, after the pandemic, we are seeing that there's an economic bounce back, and I fear that things will change, and the economy could stall. And here, Eurayji, who was working at a clothing store in the southwest neighborhood of Brasilia, the day prior to elections.
0: Politics are an embarrassment this year, really. I've never seen anything like this. And this impacts businesses. I'm really worried about unemployment and security. There's a lot of people going hungry and without jobs.
4: Interest rates in Brazil are at the highest since 2017. Central bankers were ahead of the curve and raised interest rates in the wake of the pandemic. Last September, they stopped an 18 months long tightening cycle, which took rates to 13.75%. Inflation fell from 12% earlier this year to forecast of 5.6% by December. But it wasn't monetary policy, that helped halt price increases. It was tax cuts. Temporary tax cuts that lower transportation costs, including gasoline. And most of them are set to expire by the end of the year. Here's Roberto Sosemsky, Brazil analyst at Barclays.
5: So we have seen a significant uh, decline in headline inflation. In fact, uh, we experienced three months of uh, deflation in Brazil between July and September. But now in October, we already started to see monthly prices rising again. So when you look at uh, what we call core inflation that basically focuses on the less volatile prices in the economy, uh, that measure continues to be quite high and it will take longer for uh, them to improve.
4: Brazil's economy has proven resilient to high interest rates. Many Brazilians are concerned of what comes next for the economy. Zsamsky, the Barclays analyst, expects the nation's economy to grow by just 1% next year, down from 2.7%. And a big question is how the government will respond to persistent inflation. Here's Fabio Mendes, a Doorman in the southwest neighborhood of
2: Brasilia. May
4: God bless whoever wins, because the economy is really weak. It's not performing as it should. I worry about prices of food, gasoline, and cooking gas. We'll see what the next president does, and if he manages to lower prices, because if not, we won't even have enough to eat. And then there's all the campaign promises that need funding. That's Lula, in an event in the city of Juiz de Fora, speaking to a crowd of supporters before Election Day. He's promising to raise minimum wages so they match inflation. During the campaign trail, he also promised to cut taxes for those with the lowest income. He promised object reform, that would increase taxes on the richest. And he promised paychecks to the poor of 600 reais, which is about 116 US dollars. But the now elected president hasn't said how all of that will be financed. Brazil's public debt has risen through most of the past decade and is now the highest among the major emerging markets. What investors need from the government is some sort of reassurance that this debt will be paid back at some point. Here's Adriana Dupita, Brazil economist at Bloomberg Economics. The big problem for Brazil right now is that none of its fiscal rules is credible. Governments from the right and the left political spectrum have circumvented each of these rules. So the first question for the new presidential mandate is to propose a new credible, enforceable and feasible fiscal rule. The second question is to make sure that the country can fund the many promises made on the campaign trail, especially on social aid and income tax cuts. Latin America has seen a wave of protests erupt as governments have failed to deliver their promises of helping ease the pain of high inflation and low growth. So it's not just the market but Brazilians themselves, who will be looking at how Luna navigates the challenge of increasing social aid while keeping Brazil's debt levels stable. And they are likely to keep tabs on their new president, who could come under pressure if he doesn't fulfill all those promises he made on the campaign trail. For Bloomberg News, this is Maria Luisa Capurro.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
2: So I'm delighted to talk a bit more about the prospects for Brazil with Richard Bach, who's head of political analysis and strategy at XP Investimentos in Brazil. Um, But I should say he's joining me from uh, a mountaintop uh in what is a a public holiday in brazil so thank you very much uh for having this uh having this conversation with me on your on your day off richard um it's been a busy week i know uh and we've had quite a lot of uncertainty at various times over whether the current president joe Bolsonaro had actually admitted defeat so i guess could you just give us an update on where things stand
5: Sure. Uh, yeah, good afternoon. Um, it, it is a pleasure to talk to you today. Um, you know, Lula is, is getting some kind of short vacations from today until Sunday. So I'm really happy with this. So I could come to, to this mountain and uh, take a <laughs> breath for a couple of days and then we'll be back.
2: Yeah. He's on He's yes. on the beach, I was told. In Bahia I he's State, on the beach. yes. Yeah. This
5: is a very nice place. I recommend. And uh, But yeah, we, we are living these days after the elections that Bolsonaro half recognized the result of the election. But uh, we're seeing this road being blocked by Bolsonaroistic truck drivers and uh, militants from his cause. And um, yeah, I think it, it works in a, in a coordinated way because Bolsonaro was delaying to talk, to, be, to make a first speech after the elections because he was hoping that people will go to the sh- streets and make protests in favor of him. And then he could be politically stronger than he is right now. But the other side of this, this coin is uh, if people doesn't go and they are not going in this multitude that he was hoping, um, he will be in a weak situation and very isolated by the establishment in Brazil, media, political establishment, judiciary establishments. They are just leaving Bolsonaro. So um, this, I, I don't think it, this is, will work in a good way for him, but I think it's done. What what I'm saying to our clients since uh, the last month, I think since since, since September, is uh, I th- we we were forecasting this, you know, truck drivers, people in the streets protesting, but we never we never took this as a real threat to democracy in Brazil. So this is a thing that democracy can support. I, I I'm not saying they should support, but can support, and um, it is happening. But I think the the end is one week, two weeks. We we are. Free from this thing
2: yeah so you can have demonstrations on the street but that doesn't necessarily mean a real uh, challenge to to the rule of law or to the peaceful transfer of power and just to remind us when would that transfer of power happen when would when would president-elect I guess Lula um, become president again <laughs> <laughs>
5: yeah, again, third time. Um, this is There's two moments. One moment in December, maybe December the 10th. It, it is a date that the uh, Supreme Electoral Court defines in December when they give him a, a kind of uh, certificate that he won the elections. So, And then this first moment, official. And uh, the second moment is January the 1st, when uh, you have officially the new president. It, it is constitutional. Uh, you have officially the new president becoming president, working in the office officially. And the Congress in Brazil, uh, one month after that, is gener- is February the 1st.
2: What kind of constraints do you see on him? And of course, there's a lot of people hoping that he can um, achieve great things and um, be focusing on the poorest in society and other things that he's been sort of known for, is he going to be very constrained in what he can do?
5: Yes, he will. I think he will have uh, the same constraints that Bolsonaro faced in the last four years uh, in this this more ideological agenda, in in terms of behavior, especially. uh, Bolsonaro couldn't approve a lot of things in the right-wing side, and Lula would not approve a lot of things from the left-wing side agenda. I think he will have a majority in Congress, uh, like 270 congressmen in the House, like a 40 congressmen, uh, senators in in Senate. It it is very, very, very easy to see the numbers in favor of Lula, uh, 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 not a big majority, but majority in both houses but it doesn't mean he will do anything he wants. It cannot be his own party administration. He knows that he will have to bring more people and will have to deal with the Congress and the judiciary because this is a, a mess, the situation that judiciary is in Brazil today. So he, he, he's saying, and this is positive, that he, he knows that he cannot be radical or revengeful or, uh, against the institutions, uh, because he can be removed from, from the presidency, as Dilma was in the past. He nominated Alckmin, uh his vice president, a very conservative man, um, for the coordination of the process of transition, which is a very good sign, because he could nominate someone from his own party. So he is opening this thing. Uh, a little bit, because it doesn't mean much, but he knows and he reads Lula uh, very well, this kind of signals that he has to to give to the society. So he's doing that.
2: From a distance, it looks surprising. You know, when Lula was first elected and he's this left-wing firebrand, former trade unionist and metal worker, um, I seem to remember investors in the financial markets were were pretty worried. And yet this result... uh, of his his winning the presidency seems to have gone down reasonably well. So, so briefly, how would you how would you describe the, the the reaction of kind of international investors to this result, and and what is it that that investors are thinking when they look at Lula?
5: Yeah, it was interesting because since the last year, um, after the the opening, the general opening, and uh finally we could travel to the U.S. and uh, U.K. and um, make contact with uh, personally with the, our clients and investors in Brazil. And uh, they were more more comfortable with Lula winning the elections before the Brazilians. So the foreigners, they were more comfortable with this, this thing. Yeah, we know Lula, he will make distortions, but he's not the guy that will blow everything and uh, make a, a, a very red government, red administration, left-wing orientated uh, during the campaign. we We haven't, this this volatility that many people were expecting during the elections, you know, in the markets in Brazil, because, you know, you know uh, the investors in Brazil, they used to say, we know, uh, already know the good part and the best part of both of these guys, Lula and Bolsonaro. So we have seen the worst from Lula and the best from Lula, the worst from Bolsonaro, the good parts of Bolsonaro. So uh, not that surprising situation, right?
2: That's interesting. And finally, I mean, for the region and for the sort of broader economy, do you think it's good news to have Lula re-elected? I mean, we are in a very difficult situation for the global economy. Lots of emerging market economies dealing with um, a stronger dollar, which traditionally is quite a bad thing, and also rising interest rates by the Federal Reserve. We've been talking earlier in the show about the the US interest rates. That's in the past often been a recipe for for crises in places like brazil um but we also have some possible pluses and advantages coming to to South America from the fact that the u s is sort of distancing itself and potentially decoupling from from its some of its trade relationships with china so Does a Lula presidency make it more likely that Brazil will come through this in relatively good health and maybe seize some opportunities from the current state of affairs?
5: I think so. Um, The diagnosis that his party and people in his his inner circle is getting more matured because it, it was scaring me personally because six months ago when you asked them about the foreign Situation, the Fed, all that stuff—it wasn't in, the, in their political or economical calculations, you know, and uh, it was kind of surprise for them. So, you, uh, at this point, I was looking and wow, this is this is weird, you know. They 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 should be aware about that, uh, but they are increasing this understanding that the foreign situation can be not good for Brazil. So, but but Lula, he he he's already doing better in this foreign relationship uh than bolsonaro because bolsonaro he he he's not very fond of this international negotiations and um Lula is, he he loves that thing you know he loves to be loved so he uh and macron they have a very good relationship i i i'm pretty uh, sure that he will meet with mr joe biden before uh, even being in the office, in terms of negotiation, I think Lula has advantage in terms of uh, reading the scenario and a- acting according to the scenario. I think uh, Bolsonaro has a better team than Lula can nominate.
2: That's interesting. So right now, the sort of economic expertise would would still favor the current the current president, but if. What you standing in the international community means anything at all. Uh, President Lula is going to be be better off, as not least because he's he's going to go off and be the hero at the COP meetings I see uh, in uh, in Egypt. Um, so many concerns globally about what was going to happen to the Brazilian uh, the the rainforest if if President Bolsonaro stayed in power. Richard Bach, and um, thank you so much uh, for doing this on your day off. We really appreciate you coming on.
5: Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation.
2: That's it for Stephanomics. I have no idea what we're going to talk about next week, but check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy and follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Samasadi, Yang Yang and Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to Eloisa Maria Capuro, Richard Bach, Nancy Cook and Anna Wong. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics.